Hello, this is Dr. Shala Salem, and today we'll be mapping polycystic ovarian syndrome on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Shayla Salem. Shayla Salem, MD, is an integrative gynecologist who's been helping patients optimize fertility and the preconception period for well over a decade. Dr. Salem's personal challenges with her own health and fertility led her to look beyond conventional medicine and pursue training in integrative medicine. She completed a fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona under Dr. Andrew Weil. She now utilizes an integrative approach to preconception and fertility, which examines areas of nutrition, mental health, environmental toxins, and mindfulness to help increase the chances of conception and support a healthy pregnancy. She is the host of the podcast, Fertility Journeys, a show aimed at sharing an integrative perspective to fertility treatment to support optimal health and wellness for those on the fertility journey. Dr. Salem, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you, Andrea, for having me. I'm really excited to be able to speak to you today. Yeah, and I'm excited to speak with you in particular about polycystic ovarian syndrome. I'm wondering if you could just start us out by talking about what it is or how you define it in the clinic. Yeah, so polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, I have to say that most practitioners I know really despise the name because it's really misleading. And oftentimes you'll have people who may think they have it or doctors who may think someone has it and they really don't have an understanding of what criteria need to be met to have the diagnosis. So it's definitely often can be misdiagnosed because it really doesn't have to do with cysts. It's more of a metabolic type of syndrome. But basically, you know, the most accepted rules for diagnosing PCOS come out of the Rotterdam criteria, which is you know, two out of the following three things, which I'm going to review, that's the most accepted diagnosis. So first one being having what we call oligomenorrhea, which is kind of defined as having fewer than nine menstrual cycles uh, a year, which usually means someone may be having like a 35 plus day cycle or more. And so they have, you know, irregular menses, which in turn means that they are likely here not ovulating regularly. Second thing means that they have uh, elevated male hormones or hyperandrogenism, which you can diagnose either by clinical features, either having hirsutism or you know, I mean, facial hair or body hair that might come around the nipples or the chest area, the back, the neck. Other signs of high androgens might be male kind of balding. So some women will have a receding hairline. 
or experience more hair loss. You may also see that patients have more weight gain around the midsection, which is kind of more typical for male weight gain. You may have acne. That's one of the most common things is that someone may have acne and they could even be, you know, a lot of women, they're in their late 30s and they're still struggling with acne. You can have sometimes no real outwardly symptoms, but you see the blood testing. So we look at blood androgens, so testosterone comes back and we see elevations in that. And so that would classify for the hyperandrogenism. And the third one is polycystic appearing ovaries on ultrasound, which that is really kind of controversial. The definition is really you need one ovary on ultrasound that shows 12 or more we call antral follicles, so small little follicles at the start of the cycle, which typically in you know a normal cycling patient, one of them will go on to be selected to ovulate. But in a PCOS patient, they kind of always have ovaries that look like just baseline. And so you need one ovary with 12 or more. Now that one is a little bit tricky because you can have somebody who has a ovary that has polycystic appearance, but doesn't necessarily mean they fill all the criteria for the syndrome. I'm so glad you spoke into it in that way. You gave us so much information right there, but also busted a myth. And I think this happens a lot in healthcare today. We get kind of attached to a diagnosis and then everybody thinks they have it. Everybody's being treated for it. And I'm wondering how that looks for you in clinic. Are people coming in saying, I have PCOS? They're identifying with that. They maybe even been treated for it and they're not actually being cared for in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, you definitely see, I, I hear the story, oh, you know, I've been in the ER with ruptured cysts. I have cysts on my ovaries all the time. This isn't a disease of cysts. That's not what we're focused on here. Sure, some people will have ruptured cysts, but the ovary makes cysts. That's the function of the ovary. To make a follicle that will ovulate that becomes a cyst, that's even a cyst itself. Just making an egg, that's a cyst. So if you do an ultrasound on anybody, you're going to find a cyst. And you're going to find also multiple what we call antral follicles. If you don't have any of that, you're in menopause. Okay. So yeah, some people are misdiagnosed or they may have gone online and read, oh, I must have PCOS. I see more the reverse though. I see more women that are missed because they don't fit the classic. Like I think a lot of physicians, if their specialty isn't really, you know, gynecology or infertility, then they're not as used to seeing a lot of PCOS patients. So they may have trained with that typical pattern of, uh, oh, I need to see a woman that has, you know, hair on her face and she needs to be overweight and, you know, thinning hair and lots of acne. But that's not the case. It's a spectrum. It's not like hypothyroidism, for example, where you get to just check the thyroid levels and go, oh, that person has. It's something that's like you have to see the, all the symptoms. That's why even treatment isn't just, oh, just do this because everybody's different. Yeah, everything's like that these days, right? Even even hypothyroidism, it's confusing for people who don't know how to look specifically at the whole person. What are the triggering events for the occurrence of PCOS? What are we seeing as the factors that lead us there? Yeah, so PCOS is a little bit hard. We don't really know exactly what the cause is, but we think that it's sort of a combination of genetic factors along with environmental factors potentially. We do see that in those who had mothers who had PCOS, we do see higher rates. And there is some evidence perhaps that maybe maternal androgens or excess androgens 
exposure in utero may be associated with a higher risk of PCOS. But really, there's like a two-hit hypothesis, which means you, you know, you have this exposure maybe in utero. Now the ovary is set up for production of high androgens later. And then, you know, in puberty, they now produce higher androgens in presence of that genetic predisposition. But, you know, again, we don't know 100%. That's kind of what the current thought is. Yeah. So we don't know the why, but then we can start to address how we would reverse the symptoms or can we actually reverse or put the syndrome into remission? So that's a hard one because I know I see a lot of things and I, especially on social media, reverse your PCOS, get rid of your PCOS, which is a kind of not true. I mean, yes, can you manage the symptoms? Surely some people can, but I think it also sets a lot of patients up for this idea that if they don't eat a certain diet, then they're not going to get better. Or if they do eat a certain diet, they're going to get better. And some really can't. I mean, there are a lot of women who are, you know, very thin PCOS, but even with the best diet and the best of intention with exercise, they still may have irregular menstrual cycles. So you can't always, you know, reverse it. I don't want to say you should improve it. I guess is the right word. Yeah. I mean, I use the word manage for a lot of chronic conditions and it's not sexy. So people do want that promise. Of course. It sells books. Right? It sells books. (laughs) It grows your social following, but then it also makes people feel bad because they are trying everything and doing everything and then they either ditch it or they feel like something in there doesn't work for them. Take us into the center part of the matrix and walk us through in a bit more detail particularly starting with the environmental inputs, because I know you have a passion for that area. What are some contributing factors and also ways that we might see that area impacting the internal physiology and occurrence of the cysts? Yeah, so environment is a, a little bit of a tough one. I mean, there is some evidence that certain environmental toxins can be associated with higher rates of PCOS, but we're not really sure whether this is like, you know, cause or effect. We don't really know. But definitely it's something that I talk to patients about because they're endocrine disruptors. So right, some of the chemicals that we're exposed to are endocrine disruptors. We already have a disrupted, you know, communication between the pituitary and the ovaries. They're not communicating properly, which is why, you know, we're not seeing ovulation. It's part of it. It's not the whole thing. But, you know, so if you have, you're using exposure to chemicals that are estrogen-like, you already are somebody who has an overexposure to estrogen. Now it's something that may be further interrupting. And so definitely in those patients, I, and all my patients, really, I talk to them about endocrine disruptors and trying to reduce, but I think it's particularly important for patients with PCOS and all the environmental toxins, to be honest, you know, they all have potential for endocrine disruption. And I think that it's really important for the patient with PCOS and even microbiome disruption, right? You know, the patients with PCOS are found to have sort of altered microbiome. Again, not sure if that's a result of their condition or something that is contributor or goes along with PCOS. It's something that we're only starting to see right now. But, you know, those environmental chemicals can affect the microbiome and just be an added problem. Mm -hmm. And are we seeing symptoms commonly in these patients that impact the GI? 
So, you know, you can have, we know that we can have like, for example, non-alcoholic fatty liver because PCOS, it's not just about your fertility or having your periods, right? It's a syndrome that can affect the entire body and even beyond reproductive stage age. So one of the things is it can be related to, you know, fatty liver. So you do see that. There are some patients that will, I see very young patients who have some early signs of, you know, abnormal liver enzymes and things like that. And, you know, are there people who have issues with GI symptoms? It's possible, but I don't know if that's really one of the defining things other than that. Yeah. And when you talked about some of those defining things, are you also seeing energy? Are there issues with iron? Is that common? That's something I know I've seen a bit in my practice. How are we relating energy to the diagnosis itself? So it depends. I mean, definitely, you know, patients there, a lot of them can be nutrient depleted depending on whether, especially if they're on birth control pills, they're more likely to have nutrient depletion. And so you do commonly also see vitamin D deficiency amongst those patients. And you know, I'm not opposed to birth control pill use at all. In fact, I use it, or I'm not really much in my practice, but I've used it much before. And I think it definitely has utility in the PCOS patient because there are certain things that, like we talked about, we can't reverse. And so, you know, one of the things that can happen to PCOS patient is be, we know we have this overwhelming amount of estrogen without having progesterone. And so they're, you know, going to be at risk for problems in the uterine lining, which then can progress to hyperplasia or endometrial cancer. And I've seen that in young women. And so many people are now afraid of using the birth control pill. But if you don't regulate your cycle, which some people cannot, or you don't use some kind of intermittent progesterone, then you're going to be somebody who's going to be at risk for endometrial hyperplasia. Yeah, it's so important, this yes and, you know, really understanding where we need to lean into all different arenas and not just put our hands on our hips and say, food is medicine and it can heal everything. There's a time and a place for all different modalities of care and healing, and likely we need more than one modality. So before we talk about those interventions, can you let me know if there's anything I'm not asking you physiologically that we should be talking about and illuminating for practitioners around that center arena of the functional nutrition matrix? I mean, I think it's important to, like we said, to understand that this is something that affects the whole body, right? So, and one of the main areas that I see really ignored is mental health. Mental health, we do see very high rates of depression and anxiety amongst women who have PCOS. That's something that's often not addressed. It used to be thought that this was a function of perhaps they were maybe not happy with body image or appearance, maybe they're overweight or they had acne or hair loss. But then we found out that it was much more than that, that even when they controlled for all those things, it's something that whether, is it related to microbiome? There's some questions about that. You know, is there some issue with the microbiome that's causing them to be more at risk for depression? We don't know, but definitely there's really high rates of depression, anxiety. Also, you can see that there's high rates of eating disorders. So, you know, it could be binge eating disorder. It might be bulimia. Those are the common two, but it could even be anorexia. It's a lot of times because patients are so struggling to try to manage their weight that they may be having some difficulties with eating disorders. So I think that those are the things often that kind of get put to the side that we don't focus on because we're usually focusing on like, let's check your periods and let's, you know, see, are you going to get pregnant? And 
and all of that, because we're talking about a young woman, those are two areas that are often not really discussed as much. And we're starting to really, you know, bring that up more. Yeah, full body systems. We have to think through systems biology and recognize all the connections and the history that brought somebody here. So how do you address it? And I know you spoke earlier about the importance of recognizing bioindividuality and that the factors that are contributing, the two out of those three factors may be different for different women. Do you have a systematic way that you're addressing this with your patient population? I mean, I think it depends on what's their goal. So what's the goal here? Is the goal, are they, is this a young woman who's trying to not be pregnant? Is it a young woman who wants to be pregnant now? So, you know, obviously if you have someone who wants to be pregnant, you're not going to be utilizing any type of birth control pill and you're going to be focusing more on, you know, along with all the lifestyle things, ovulation, helping them to ovulate. So it really depends on what their goal. Are you working with someone who's more towards menopause because it's still... You know, you may have somebody who's dealing with, you know, insulin resistance or prediabetes, high blood pressure. They have risk for cardiovascular disease. We're seeing that, you know, now for sure. And we talked also about fatty liver. So it kind of depends on what their goal is. I mean, I particularly work mostly with patients who are trying to conceive. So I'm really trying to optimize them for pregnancy by using certain lifestyle factors. I don't think that there's one necessarily particular diet because that takes us to, you know, there's a lot of people that think you should be eating keto or you should try vegan or you should eat paleo or, I mean, it's confusing for us because we don't know and the studies are not randomized control. So, you know, you can't say, oh, it has to be, you have to eat like this. And because everybody's different, everybody's body's different. So what might work for somebody? Great. Keto works for you. I'll work with that. I have patients so they can do it. But if I prescribe keto diet to everybody, not everybody can do that. Yeah. And diet isn't a prescription, right? Like people can't actually follow things just because they've been prescribed to do it. It's not picking it up at the pharmacy. I mean, exactly. I I try to just really tell them, listen, you know, you have PCOS. It can be a little bit of a bummer because you have to be more vigilant about a lot of lifestyle things. You know, you have a friend who weighs the same amount as you, but you know, she is ovulating and she has regular periods. And you're like, wait, how come I have to worry about my weight or what I eat. It doesn't make sense. She's perfectly fine. But you are in a situation where, you know, you're more predisposed to, you know, having issue. And some of the patients, yes, I do have patients who I work with when we talk about using diet and sleep and, you know, stress reduction, environmental toxin reduction, it will help to improve and may help them to have a more regular cycle. I had personal experience with this, but that doesn't work for everybody. Right. Yeah. And it's important to know that we have to customize and recognize that as practitioners, we're not doing anything wrong if what we recommend doesn't work. (laughs) The situation may be more complex than that. So what are your favorite things on the right side of the matrix to be talking about in relation to PCOS? You mentioned, you know, stress reduction and nutrition, sleep. Is there any way you'd be prioritizing these? I think sleep is really, really important. Again, one that doesn't get talked about as much. It's one of those ones that we can easily abuse, all of us, and still get away with it and not really understand what kind of damage it's doing. And so there are some estimates that as much as 30% or more patients with PCOS may have sleep apnea. So we really recommend all patients with PCOS to go for a sleep study 
to get evaluated because it's very high. And they also are more associated with other sleep disorders. Not to mention that also if you have a sleep disorder, now you're going to be more at risk for you know, having glucose issues or insulin resistance can be a problem more already on top of what you have, right? So that can happen in a regular person who doesn't sleep well, but now you have a PCOS person who may have. Unfortunately, a lot of these things are just brushed aside. A regular, you know, physician doesn't ask people about sleep. They just, you know, treat the symptoms as we know, which is why you have such a wonderful podcast trying to help people get to really root cause. But, you know, nobody asks people about sleep. And really, when I started asking people those questions years ago, I started realizing, wow, this is like, oh my gosh, everybody has this problem. You know, people have issues with sleep and it's, you know, it's something that they worry about later on, but it's associated with so many difficulties. Definitely PCOS is some, so I think sleep is a priority to address. And the other thing is exercise. So exercise is something that can definitely help patients with PCOS, especially if you do some kind of weight training to have more muscle mass, which can then help you with insulin resistance. And again, you know, all these things I really try to, with my patients, I try to take the approach of meeting them where they're at, because a lot of this stuff is really overwhelming. If I start going, you need to sleep eight hours a week and you need to exercise, you know, five times a week and you need to be doing weights. For a lot of my patients, they are learning and they don't know. What does that mean? I'm not comfortable even going to a gym. And now, so giving them little tiny little steps where they can start, I think is really important, especially for somebody with PCOS, you know, 70, 80% of them are going to be dealing with some kind of either overweight or obese. They may have some issues with trying to go in a workout place, maybe with others or things like that. So giving them things that they can do at home, you know, but weight training is definitely something that I tell them to do to be helpful. And stress, of course, this is something that affects everybody. It's not, uh, you know, something that any of us can get away with, but I really try to just help people to focus on how can we manage our stress. I really just want to commend the empathy in your approach, Dr. Salem. It just really resonates with me, and especially for a patient population that likely does have to manage something long-term and is having not just symptoms, but outcomes in terms of fertility that are really stressful. I just want to commend that you bring such an empathetic lens to the work you do. Is there anything else that we didn't discuss that you wish practitioners would just wake up to in relation to our clients and patients with PCOS? Honestly, I've changed over the years, I have to say. I think I came from an approach years ago, I mean, it comes with just doing this job for a while, where I would think, everybody needs to do this, you should do this, you should eat like that, you should exercise. And then you realize that's not reality. And honestly, even more so after the pandemic, it really bothers me that I see a lot of this online, social media, everybody just pushing, this is what you need to do, you need to eat this, you need to do this. When many of our patients, that's great if they, you know, are the 1% at the top, but there's a lot of people that can't afford to... I work with a lot of women that have two jobs and they're caretaking for somebody. They may have small children and they have a lot going on in their life. So they can't be, you know, waking up an hour early and meditating for half an hour and then doing yoga and then, you know, doing meal prep all the time and eating perfectly. That is not reality for the majority of my patients. Okay. So I have to really, you know, speak to them as what are the small things and the small wins that they can celebrate 
that they're really, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to be constantly doing this and constantly doing the work to take care of your PCOS. And so just, you know, having them celebrate the small wins, like going on those little walks or, you know, trying to do better efforts of not using their phones at bedtime so they can get better sleep, certain things like that. I think those are beneficial. Now, one of the things that I see a lot is putting people on progesterone. Please don't do this. If you are, if you have a patient or people putting themselves on progesterone yes. these days, that's, we see a lot of that. Too. Yes. Especially for the patient who's trying to conceive. I have seen patients who've come in who are like, oh, I was told I have very low progesterone. So I need progesterone supplement. And they've been doing daily progesterone supplement for the last several months. That's basically birth control. So, you know, progesterone, you cannot add it to cause pregnancy or to help them or it's something, yes, do they need progesterone to help that overwhelming amount of estrogen if someone's not having a a cyclic cycle? Yes, because we talked about it can increase their risk for endometrial hyperplasia or, you know, endometrial cancer. But at the same time, you know, giving someone progesterone daily is something if someone is trying to conceive is not the right thing because the progesterone is only in half of our cycle. Such a good point. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us, for sharing your empathy with us, for bringing us into that lens where we can do a better job of more holistically holding our clients and patients. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much, Andrea. It was a pleasure to speak with you. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your client's issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.